Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you very much for joining me for this podcast. So the big news in the evangelical world, and, and more specifically in the SBC world, for the last week or a little better, has been plagiarism. The plagiarism scandal of Ed Litton, the newly elected president of the SBC. And uh, I did a, a, a video on this about a week or so ago, and since then, as I predicted, many, many, many more videos have come out documenting the just absolutely undeniable plagiarism. And it is voluminous plagiarism by Ed Litton. And you know, I, I one of the ironic things about this is that uh, Ed Litton and I actually went to the same seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, we were there at different times. I was there in the uh, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. But if I had, he was there much earlier, I say much earlier, probably about 10 or so years earlier. But had I done 1% of the amount of plagiarism that Ed Litton has done, and that's just of the plagiarism of which I am aware, undoubtedly there's a ton out uh, more out there that I have not seen and, and never will see. But if I had, if I had been caught doing just one percent of what I have seen, I would have been kicked out of seminary, rightfully so. Not only would I have been kicked out of seminary, I would have been kicked out of Mississippi State University, a completely secular institution that I that I intended as an undergraduate. You know, my college years, I would have been kicked out of a secular university for doing this. Much more, much less a seminary, and here is Ed Linton. He is the president of the entire Southern Baptist Convention. It's just surreal. And so I've asked Jim Osmond, the pastor of Kootenai Community Church in Sandpoint, Idaho. I have a link to his church uh, down in the description below. So I asked him to come on and to offer us his thoughts. Uh, he has been the pastor of Kootenai Community Church for 24, almost 25 years now, I believe. And uh, so we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about plagiarism. We're going to play excerpts of Ed Litton's interview in which he, he, he offers something of an apology, but we're going to talk about that. I've got, uh, again, excerpts that we'll play, and I'll get Jim Osmond's uh, reaction to this. Also, the issues that are just involved with this. What does that mean for, uh, from an integrity standpoint? What does that mean from a pastoral standpoint? Uh, sermon preparation, all of these kinds of issues. We're also going to talk about homosexuality and the issues uh, related to that because they also tie into this plagiarism stuff. It's it's quite the tangled web that has been woven. Is that the right? Uh, yeah, woven, I believe. That has been woven. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the, just the, the rampant plagiarism in the SBC. It is, it is quite the problem all throughout the SBC. We'll talk about that. And uh, so I hope that this interview will be helpful for you. We're going to cover an awful lot of ground. Some difficult things will be said. Uh, we're going to talk about the state of the SBC in general and the dangerous uh, slide, the dangerous direction that it is 
undeniably heading right now. And uh, we will acknowledge that there are some some good folks in the SBC and, and some good churches, but the SBC is heading in a very, very dangerous direction and is heading there quite speedily. So, all right. Thank you very much, dear ones. Here we go into the interview. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're moving now to the interview section of this video. And I wanted to interview, this is Jim Osmond. He's the pastor of Kootenai Community Church in Sandpoint, Idaho. Jim, thank you for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, good deal. And Jim, I wanted to have you on because for a couple of different reasons. One, we're friends. Uh, I know you, I've watched your life for a a number of years, a decade or so now. Yeah. um, So I've, I've been a member of your church. You've been my pastor before and uh until we moved and so so i know you and i trust you and i and i trust your impartial judgment and also you're not sbc right no i'm not I'm, our our church is non-denominational we are not affiliated with any denomination okay <clears throat> all right so you've you've never been a part of the sbc and and i i really want i've never been a member of an sbc okay so you're not some guy that's got a personal axe to grind against S- you're not <laughs> You're not uh, trying to get Ed Litton out so the other guy can get in. <laughs> so that I could be the president. Right. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Okay. All right. So, so Jim, you've seen a lot of the videos of the undeniable plagiarism uh, regarding J.D. Greer and Ed Litton. Uh, I think J.D. Greer has, has some of his own issues, but primarily here, uh, Ed Litton plagiarizing. J.D. Greer. And so you've seen this. Um, what I, I showed you the video of Ed Litton plagiarizing <clears throat> J.D. Greer's yeah. message or illustration of driver's ed. You know, when I took driver's ed, I was thinking about this the other day because my daughters are about this age where they're getting into this. And driver's ed, I had, I don't, I think they still do it, but the car that I took driver's ed in had the guy sitting next to me had this big old brake. That's all he had. Do y'all have this, the big old brake coming out? And it meant that he could stop that car anytime he wanted. And in fact, he did it like after we'd been out about five minutes just to show me that he had it. So I wanted to turn and he just like slammed on that brake and like, you know, slam in there. And what he was showing me was, you think you're in control of this car. And I'm letting you drive, but I can stop this car anytime I want to. You don't need a list of suggestions from Pastor Ed. You need, to, you need new life from Jesus Christ. I took driver's ed in high school. That was a trip. I'll never forget the guy who was teaching me. I noticed he had a strange thing over, just underneath the, the glove box, there was this brake. And, and when I first pulled out of the parking lot, he stomped on it to show me who really boss was. And, 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 and I'll never forget that. When you come to Christ, you didn't come, you basically turn over the brake. And you're like, because I would describe probably some of our spiritual lives that way. Is it Jesus is speaking to you? And you're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's go over here. That sounds awesome. Oh, I'll do that. But every once in a while, you're like, nope. You push that brake in and the car comes to a halt because you've never actually surrendered it to him. You've kept that brake right in place. To be surrendered to Jesus means you take the brake away. Many of us see our relationship to Christ that way. And I'm not talking about you're the student driver. You're the guy with the brake. And to come to Christ and to surrender to him means that you give him the steering wheel. But you need to uninstall that brake, dude. You need to stop slamming on it every time God starts moving in your life. But ultimately, he had the veto power. He had not surrendered the car to me. Until you surrender your brake to the Holy Spirit of God, 
Friend, you're vetoing God. Who do you think you are? What What were your thoughts when you saw that? Well, the f- first thing, of course, it's it's obvious plagiarism. It is possible. It is conceivably possible that Ed Litton and J.D. Greer had the exact same driver's ed teacher. That's conceivably possible. It is conceivably possible that that same teacher gave the same illustration to every class that he that he had. That is possible. It's also possible that um, it's, it's conceivably possible that Ed Litton remembers being in driver's ed and he heard J.D. Greer's illustration and then thought, well, that's a good one. I remember that as well. But then he went on to tell that exact illustration of that teacher doing the same thing. It would be one thing if he had simply taken the illustration of a foot pedal on the, on the passenger side of a driver's ed car and, and likened just to borrow the illustration and then kind of generalized it. Sometimes it's possible for us to do that in a sermon where we hear a good illustration of happening in somebody else's life, but then we don't tell it as if it happened in our own life. Instead, we tell it as, as a good illustration of a point. That's something, you know, if I'm, if I'm taking an illustration from the life of David Livingston, for instance, I don't talk about going to the mission field in Africa <laughs> and meeting <laughs> never before reached tribes. But instead, I would talk about somebody who went to the mission field in Africa. But Lytton didn't do that. Lytton took the illustration and told it as if he had experienced that. That is nothing less than a bald-faced lie. And there's no way he could tell that, unless his conscience is seared, with a clean conscience. There's no way he could tell that illustration, knowing that he's lying. He, He knew that it wasn't his illustration, but he told it as if that had happened to him. And right. that is the that is the definition of duplicity, and 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 lying and bearing false witness. He is he is saying something happened that in fact did not happen, unless he's going to make the case that he and and uh, Greer had the same driver's ed teacher. Yeah, and I haven't done any background research, but I'm pretty sure they didn't grow up in the same hometown. I don't even think they grew up in the same state. So. Uh, in, in the interest of full disclosure, it is it is a hypothetical possibility that they have the same teacher. Hypothetically, like it is hypothetically possible that you're going to be attacked by a polar bear before this interview. So it, it is could it could be. I mean, the odds are probably similar. <sighs> yeah. Can you, um, as a pastor, I mean, okay, so we're all liars, right? You're a liar. I'm a liar. Let God be true, and every man a liar. So we're not saying yep. that none of us has ever told a lie. Of course we have. But um, as a, as a pastor, you've been a pastor for about a quarter of a century now, about 25 years, 25 years almost. Yeah. Can you, can you fathom, can you, can you fathom getting up before your people at Kootenai community church and telling a story as your own that you knew was not yours? Can you conceive of even doing that? No, no, I can't. Uh, simply because in today's day, I mean, other than the fact that it's a lie, and I just I cannot imagine stepping into the pulpit and using a lie to try and illustrate truth. I can't Im- even imagine doing that. <clears throat> but it, it is so bald faced as to do it in an age when literally every sermon is recorded and posted online and transcribed by YouTube. You can Google these things. The internet has an incredible memory. I mean, just even if I had no integrity at all and I was tempted to do it, which I'm not ever, I would never do it for that very reason that, you know, that's going to be found out. You can't you can't possibly plagiarize something like that and not have it be brought to light, especially when you 
ascend to the highest position in the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, the world is watching. The Christian world is watching, and, and they're going to look, be looking for stuff like that. So, right. no, I, I think it's, 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 um, it's lying. It's nothing short of lying, and I just can't even conceive how anybody would get to the point of doing that. It, it shows just a complete lack of integrity. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, uh, in doing some research for this, I've, I've come across, in fact, a, a friend of mine, Bud Alheim, sent me this link. So uh, apparently some of the material for the sermons that J.D. Greer writes and Ed Litton writes comes from a website or an organization called the Docent Research Group. I've never even heard of them until the last 18 hours or so. And, uh, so I looked them up. And uh, just read this to you off of the website. It says, we are a knowledgeable team of researchers, researchers, all seminary trained. Our researchers are either earning MDivs or PhDs, or they've already earned them. Uh, we are passionate about God's word and the church's theology, and we love the opportunity to advance God's kingdom by serving the preachers of the word. So this is a this is a, a research group that apparently pastors can can uh, hire, employ their services. I didn't even look up the prices, but... Uh, they'll do research for you. You tell them, you know, I need research on this. I need research on that. I need, I need you to give me sermon ideas for this text. What does this mean? Do research in the, in the languages. Apparently they can do all of that. And I found this paragraph interesting. They said, once we have learned from you how to best serve you, we recruit a specific dedicated research team that is matched to your theo- to your theological commitments and your style. You will have a dedicated team captain who will keep in contact with you and lead the research team to deliver exactly what you request. So we will match the content to your theological commitments. Yeah. Take it away. What does that, that is that is nothing less than Madison Avenue advertising PR firm brought into the church. What they're saying is we have no principles or theological convictions, but what are yours? If you're a cessationist, we'll give you a cessationist message from 1 Corinthians 13. If you're a continuationist, we'll give you a continuationist message from 1 Corinthians 13. If you're on-mill, post-mill, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib, whatever your theological stripe, whatever your confession, whatever your slant, whatever your theological peccadillos, whatever they are, we will, we will take the text of scripture and the research, and we will customize it to fit whatever your perceived audience is. That would be no different than a pastor going to them and saying, look, I, I, want, to, I want to reach a certain demographic of people, and I need to know what my brand should be. I, I need to know uh, how I should be uh, p- packaging and marketing myself to the community or to the, the world at large in order to sort of hit my niche market. It's the same thing that they're doing with sermons. What's your niche theological market? And we will take the text of scripture as well as all of the research and we'll customize it to fit that. Um, that is somebody, here's the danger of that for a pastor. A pastor, like say I were to go to them and say, all right, I'm a cessationist church. We're Baptistic, uh, credo-baptist, so we're not paedo-baptist. We're reformed in our theology, hold to the reformed doctrines of the faith that we're pre-millennial um, and cessationist. And um, believe in the, I give my doctrinal statement, my entire doctrinal statement. And then I say, okay, um, I want, I, I want sermons in a sermon series on the book of Ephesians that match this theological conviction. So that when I preach these or read these, that all of the PowerPoints and everything is all prepackaged according to that theology, that theological parameters, right? 
Then I get up and I deliver that. Here's what's not happening. Here's what's not happening is me sitting down at my desk and taking the passage of scripture and allowing the passage of scripture to shape my theology so that when I stand in the pulpit, my theology is the outflow of the exposition and the exegesis of scripture that I've done. When I went through the book of Ephesians in my own preaching schedule, I, uh, there was a, some areas of my theology that had to be tightened up, some doctrines that I had changed that I had long believed. Well, if you use something like the Dosen group, all you're doing is telling them, here's my theology, mold the scripture to fit it. And the opposite should be taking place. What should be taking place is I sit down in front of scripture and it becomes the grinding wheel that grinds away at me and the rough edges of my theology so that scripture hones my theology, not my preconceived theology, honing the text of scripture. Um, and that should be the goal of every Bible expositor and exegete is to sit down. And yes, we acknowledge that we have presuppositions when we approach the text. <clears throat> but then in reading through that text and studying the text, we want to be open to the fact that I may be holding to the wrong presuppositions. I may have theological convictions that I ought not to have. And scripture is the authority. So scripture must inform that and shape me. So the pastors who use the docent group are saying, I'm going to allow my theology to shape my understanding of scripture and my presentation of scripture rather than I'm going to spend the time and the effort in the word of God so that scripture shapes my theology and develops me rather than my, my theology developing a sermon. My working in the sermon and the text should be developing my theology, changing it if need be. And, and people who would use something like the docent group are missing out on the whole role of studying and expositing scripture in the life and ministry of a pastor. Right. Uh, in, in the endorsements, this uh, docent research group is endorsed by Mark Driscoll. Oh, that's high praise. <laughs> yeah. Mark Driscoll, Craig Groeschel, who is the uh, lead pastor of Life Church TV in uh, Edmond, Oklahoma, who is, uh, you know, kind of a Joel Osteen-ish, maybe a little bit more meat than Joel Osteen, but but still very secret. Well, that's, that's he not, just put, no, that's not saying much. That's a low bar. I mean, right. to say you got more meat than Joel Osteen means that you basically took the dry bone and you put a ligament down the side of it, and that's about it. Yeah, uh, that, that's pretty good illustration, actually. And and I, I've been to that church once before, actually. I, Kathy and I both have sat in a service, and um, it, that's that's pretty good pretty good way to describe it. So, so Jim, Ed Litton went on earlier today as of this recording. This is July the 2nd, evening of July the 2nd, 2021. And uh, he, he did an interview and he was asked about this scandal. I mean, I, I think that that's a fair way to describe it. It, it is a scandal. And uh, so I've got some audio clips from this interview, and I just want to play these as he's asked about the plagiarism and uh, his approach to sermon writing. So I'm just going to play this. And uh, once the audio finishes, get you to respond. Okay. I had J.D.'s permission, but encouragement. The other thing we did is I, as we were trying to outline the book of Romans, which is a challenge, uh, we, we finally looked at it and looked at what they had covered and felt like it was sufficient. And we also received permission to use the, the passages from week to week. And so that makes it look even more similar. But uh, what I'm stating is that, that we did our we did our Greek work, we did our commentary work, and, and, and then usually I'll have someone I listen to and I exercise when I'm doing something, traveling uh, to, to help reinforce and give me thoughts and creative ideas. Um, and there's a lot of reasons we do this. Um, in, in part, I do it to 
uh, stay fresh, listen to new voices. Sometimes I listen to older voices, but but to help me communicate to my people um, the essence of what the Word of God is saying. Yeah, so I guess what you're kind of saying in essence is that the sermons from JD were just like another commentary for you in, in the preparation, that kind of thing. It, it, a lot of them I didn't really even listen to. I would go straight to his written out notes that he provides. Okay. And so, yes, very much like a commentary in that sense. And and you know what you know as well uh, when you listen to R. Kent Hughes or when you read R. Kent Hughes's commentaries and you listen to a sermon like on Gospel Coalition, you'll find that that his commentaries are growing right out of that sermon work, yeah. which is understandable. Yeah, and Lifeway. I mean, there's a whole commentary series, the exegetical sermon series. Danny Aiken, David Platt, Tony Marita are the general editors of. So, um, and, we, and we use and, and those I've got the R. Hughes Hebrews one sitting right here in front of me on my desk too. Right, right. So, and he's awesome. So, Jim, aside from this being an obviously softball interview, I mean, this reminded me of like MSNBC interviewing Joe Biden. This is such a softball, such a friendly. I'm going to try to help you in this. What kind of ice cream did you have today, Mr. President? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of your son, what kind of ice cream does your son like? (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. So aside from those issues, um, what do you think of his explanation of, of why he now he wouldn't call it plagiarizing, but that's obviously what he did. But what, what were your impressions of that? So his argument is that he's using J.D. Greer's sermons in the same way that I might use John MacArthur's commentaries. We treated him as a commentary. He said at one point in that interview that in one point in that clip that you played that we we took the written notes of the sermons, basically, and used them like we much like we did a commentary. And then, of course, the. The interviewer just likens that to Danny Aiken's exegetical series in uh, various Bible books, or uh, is trying to compare that to how you or you and I might uh, um, consult any of the number of commentaries that are on the shelf behind you. But here's the difference: a sermon is not a commentary. A sermon is somebody else's crafting of the voice of God and the message that they're getting out of the text. Now, whether J.D. Greer is able to do that faithfully or profoundly at all, we'll set that issue aside. But a sermon is my a sermon is the product of my work in the text and then i put together the message and i use my own my own way of expressing the truth my own way of communicating the truth customized for, by my personality through my experience through my personality through jim osmond so that that is what comes out to the people in the pew when i get up and i preach and i explain that using my own words that's a sermon he didn't consult J.D. Greer's sermons like they were commentaries because he took and he lifted massive portions of it right out of there and preached the sermon. So that would be like me standing up and just reading MacArthur's commentary on the book of Hebrews, which I'm preaching through now, just getting up and opening up his commentary and reading it through illustrations, cross-references and everything, and then sitting down. That's not consulting a commentary. That's reading a commentary and calling it a sermon. So even if even his illustration that he uses, the way he tries to get around it, it doesn't fly at all. He he yeah. he doesn't use that sermon like you and I or like anybody would be taught to use a commentary in a Southern Baptist seminary. And and I would say this is this what the professors at the Southern Baptist seminaries are teaching their preaching students that this is how you consult commentaries. Now, when I preach through the book of Ephesians and I've taught through passage Romans, I'll consult uh, Spurgeon's sermons on that. In fact, every passage that I preach, I usually will read what sermons 
uh, Spurgeon has preached on that, um, mostly because sometimes Spurgeon's very quotable and he'll oftentimes use a good illustration. But when I give that illustration, uh, I, I don't borrow it or use it without referencing Spurgeon. And I don't borrow his language without saying, as Spurgeon said, I'll quote Spurgeon. Or I will, I will consult um, Martin Lloyd-Jones's commentaries or his written sermons, his published sermons on a passage. But I do those I do those not so that I can find the wording or so that I can lift large sections of the outline out of that. I use that because I want to see how other men have communicated the truth of the passages they saw in, as a result of their own study. Right. Um, that's not what we do with, with commentary. So that, that excuse just doesn't fly. I think it was probably enough to appease most Southern Baptists who would be listening to that podcast that, oh yeah, that makes sense. He was just using it like a commentary. I've heard my pastor use uh, commentary in that way and quote commentaries. Well, he didn't, he wasn't quoting J.D. Greer. He, he was lifting entire illustrations like the brake pedal on the driver's side or the passenger side of the driver's ed car. He was lifting entire illustrations, entire exegesis of the scripture or eisegesis of the scripture and entire phrases and passages out of Greer's sermons. And all he was doing was modifying them slightly, but not even enough that you can't tell exactly where they came from with a little bit of effort. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's that's actually a pretty good segue into our next clip here. This also from the same interview. Um, we'll get your reflections on this. And in your answer, you mentioned we a lot. Uh, I know you talked about in the statement, you employ a sermon team approach to help you collaboratively create these sermons. So can you talk to us, what does that look like at Redemption Church? Well, let me tell you why we started doing it. And it's one of the best things I've been a part of in a long time. We have a lot of young men on staff, and we have young people that feel a call, young men that feel a call to the Lord, and laymen in our church, to, at least on occasion, to preach the gospel. Um, and so our purpose was to raise up a new generation of gospel communicators and gospel preachers, and uh, or illustrations. And then we finished the rest of the week building that out for whoever the preachers are going to be. And again, I lead that process because I am discipling uh, young preachers, and, uh, and of course, you know, from all that people have assumed about this, that was, people would say, "Don't disciple anymore because you're messed up." But the, but the reality is, uh, it is uh, it's a very effective way, and for me, it's been a, a powerful tool because I'm listening to other voices. Well, it looks like we have an audio issue here in the podcast. Dr. Linton's AirPods just died, folks. Uh, we're going to switch him over to some wired headphones. There you go. Now you got it. Now, you were talking about how this was a discipleship issue, that the team approach allows you to disciple those on the team. The real motivation behind this was discipleship. It's, it's helping raise up a new generation of pastors and leaders who can communicate the gospel. Okay, so Jim, two questions. A, or one, what do you believe, what do you think about the team approach to writing sermons? He has uh, an eight-team member that helps him do the research, compose, and, and write his sermons. A, what do you think about that? Is that something you do? And then the second question is, I was struck by how he said this is a mentorship, a discipleship effort. This is one of the ways that he disciples young preachers. So, Yeah, so let me just paraphrase what he just said. What he just said is that um, we, we, use, we disciple young preachers to not do their own work in the text, 
but to rely upon so heavily upon the work of other people in doing it that they're not actually crafting a sermon at all themselves. They're a team approach to it. And then we teach them to preach other people's sermons. That's his method of discipleship. He's, he's basically just saying, look, we, we're just raising up a generation of young leaders in our church that will uh, plagiarize and lift material and not do any of the heavy lifting of exegesis uh, in the same way that I don't. So, I mean, a student, when he's fully trained, will be just like his teacher, and he's just raising up people who'll be just like him. Um, and again, I would ask the leadership of the Southern Baptist denomination, is this what you're training your people in your seminaries to do? And uh, there might be people say, oh, no, no, our seminaries aren't doing that. Okay, well, look, I got I, I got to challenge that because the president of your denomination is doing it. He's been doing it for years, and now he's leading your denomination. So don't tell me that your seminaries aren't going to be following suit. So what do, what do I think of the team approach to, to, to doing that? That is not how I've had the opportunity to disciple a couple of guys in, in leadership or in, uh, in teaching and preaching. And, and I'll explain to you my methodology when I'm done with this, but uh, this is not how you go about doing that. This is it, the, the, the purpose of a pastor in taking a passage of scripture is not to put it out there and let a team of people hash it over and come up with great ideas and cobble that all together and use J.D. Greer's sermons and, and do it and rely on that so heavily that you are quoting from him verbatim for large passages of the message, and then go out and preach that. The purpose of a pastor studying a passage is that you get down alone with yourself and your God and the passage of scripture, and in prayer, you are doing the work of looking at the Greek and the grammar, and you do the outlining, and you, you do the meditating. You spend the hours sitting there staring at that page, thinking through the outline, thinking through the implications, thinking through the context, the argument that the author is making from the first of the book to the last of the book, making sure that you can express the, the meaning of that passage in one sentence, that it's clear in your mind, and that you yourself are bringing your life in conformity to this truth and reminding yourself of the truth of this passage so that you take this and then you put it into your own words and you have spent time with God in his word because God meets with us in his word. So the word is the arena in which God meets with us. And we step into that and we wrestle through the passage and we think through the passage and we allow it to saturate our hearts and our minds. Then what a pastor does is he steps into the pulpit with all of his own work and labor in that he steps into the pulpit and invites the gathered assembly of the people of God to meet with that same God in that same word. And that pastor leads them through his own discovery in the text, showing them how what God is saying in the passage is true and how it applies. And he is, he is taking them on a guided tour, as it were, through that passage of scripture, so that he is allowing them to see in 45 minutes of his preaching what it took him 45 hours in a study to come up with or to, to labor through. And in doing that with the word, he's inviting in all of those people to meet with God in the word and hear the voice of God in the text of scripture as the pastor shows how he, along with the congregation, sits under the word of God, under the authority of Christ, and how we all together meet with God there in that passage of scripture. That is the, that is the point of preaching. And when the word of God is rightly preached, the voice of God is truly heard because in his word, he meets with his people. Now, if you take that, all of that effort and all of that energy that should be 40, 30, 40 hours a week of study and labor and writing and thinking and reviewing and preparing and praying yeah. and all of that, and you farm that out to a group of people, and then you take back the fruit of their collective 
share a Bible study, which is more likely what I call an SYI Bible study, share your ignorance. A bunch of people who are being discipled in doing that, they're all getting together. They're pooling all of their resources and handing it back to you. And you get up and preach what they came up with. Then you are not a guided tour guide for the people of God when they meet with God in the text. Instead, you're just up there regurgitating a well-packaged PR product. Yeah. So no, that's what I think of that discipleship approach. Now, I'm going to get to the second question here in a second. <clears throat> you can see why it takes me so long to go through a book of the Bible, because I, I take forever <laughs> to explain this. But okay, I'll get to the second question in a second. But to, to, to talk about how I would mentor men, this is I would take a entirely different approach. So I have a, a man in the congregation who's a little bit older than I am, who's, um, you know him, he's been wanting to do some teaching. He's taught in Dell Sunday school class. So, um, and I've done this with other men as well in the congregation. Um, usually I will hand them a teaching topic and I'll say, okay, you, you take the passage of scripture, you do your study and you come back to me with an outline and then they will come back with an outline and I will look at the outline and then we'll kind of discuss, okay, how did you come to this conclusion? Can you state this more succinctly? How would you describe this? Here's the theological issues that are raised by the text. How would you address this? Um, have you thought about what a possible objector might say? And I give them that feedback. They will go back and then they take that and prepare a lesson. Then when they preach the lesson, then we will meet after the lesson. And I'll say, okay, here's what you did that was good. And here are the things I think you can work on. Here are the ways that you can improve. Here are the questions that this raised for me. So when you grab the next passage of scripture, you have some constructive criticism, some constructive um, feedback that should help nourish them. That's how you, you do that. You allow them to do the work instead of discipling young men to do the same thing you do, which is farm out your exegesis and your time with God to somebody else. Yeah, right. What was the second question again? I forgot. <laughs> the first one is, do I do that? Yeah. Do you do that? And, and, uh, how do you think that, uh, is, is that a good way to disciple and mentor young men going into the, into the pulpit? Yeah. I just answered that one. No, that's not yeah. it. That's not a good way at all. Yeah. That's not how I would do it. And I don't think that that's profitable at all for, for young men. No. And, and, and you said, a, you know, a student is not above his, master but of his teacher those those young men that he's using in in this team that's how they're going to grow up and and uh that's how they're going to prepare sermons they're going to be woefully ill-prepared yeah um, to preach to preach the text yeah and so they're doing themselves a disservice they're doing the people to whom they are preaching a disservice and uh you've heard me say this before when i listen to a pastor when i listen to a preacher i want to know that that man has been in the text, that he has studied to show himself approved, that the text has impacted him, that it saturates his heart and his mind. Uh, he's been challenged by the text and wrestled with it. And in uh, in what JD Greer, I'm um, excuse me, what Ed Litton has has described there is the polar opposite of that. No, he's not familiar with the text. He's familiar with what his team of people has come up with. He hasn't spent the time with the text, and that's by his own admission. In fact, from that docent group um, page that you sent me with the recommendations from J.D. Greer and, and Mark Driscoll and, and others, that's what they say. This, sends, this saves me hours a week of, of my yeah. study time. In fact, let me just read you J.D. Greer's endorsement of the docent research group. He says this. Now, this is on the Wayback Machine. This has been taken off their website, but it's, you can still find it on the Wayback Machine. But J.D. Greer says, Docent has been a humongous help to me, saving me literally hours each week in improving the quality of my preaching dramatically. These guys are the real deal. I give them assignments and questions on everything from interpretation 
to cultural analysis to illustration, and they get me through thorough answers, always on time. They are outstanding scholars and really get my job as a communicator. I often have people remark to me, how many hours did you spend on that sermon? Where did you get time to do all that research? Ha, thanks guys for making me look so good. J.D. Greer, pastor of Summit Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, and the previous president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, I don't, I don't want to save hours a week of study time. I give up other things during the week so that I can study. I'm, when, I, when I look at my week, my hours in my week, it's not study time that I'm trying to cut out. I spend all, I do all that I can do to, to preserve that and to guard the study time and the effort, the research time that goes into preparing a sermon. And I cut out all the superfluous other stuff that tries to crowd in on that and take, and, and these guys are talking about taking that out, taking, cutting that out, farming that out to somebody else so they can get to the real important things. That yep. just, that is a, a gross ad- admission of their ineptitude and their, their woefully unbiblical priorities. Right. In fact, just last night, you and I were on uh, Apologetics Live with Andrew Appleport, Beth Alheim, and we were discussing some of this. Uh, remember the clip that we listened to where Ed Litton said in his sermon series in, in Romans, it was from the Romans chapter one. You know that the Bible never gives the classification of heterosexual or homosexual. You may find a translation that may use the word homosexual, but it's only because it's in the modern vernacular. I've uh, oftentimes, and I'm confessing a mistake in thinking, a mistake in theology. I've often interpreted this passage to say homosexuality is the sin he's talking about, and everything he mentions afterwards is a spiraling down because of that sin. Now, it is true that once we enter into certain sins, we do spiral down. We don't evolve, we devolve spiritual. But I now believe that is not what Paul is saying here. In the Bible, sexual sin is whispered compared to the shout God makes about greed and judgmentalism. Take it away. <laughs> the, the Bible does have a word for that. It, it, the Greek words that are talked about men betting men and, and sexual intercourse between men. Yeah, we call it homosexuality, but that is our English word to translate or to describe the activity that is being described there. So, yeah, yeah you're not going to go back and find a Greek word that has been transliterated like baptizo has been transliterated into baptized. You're not going to go back and find a Greek word for homosexuality that it sounds a lot like homosexual today that's just been transliterated into it. The Bible does have a word for it. The Bible did have a description for it, and the Bible does have condemnation for it. And if he had simply spent all of the time in the Greek and, and the languages and the syntax and everything that he claims that he and his re- le- uh, leadership team are spending in that, he would have known that. Exactly. I know. I thought that was a very telling thing. First uh, Corinthians 6, verse 9, uses those two terms, malakoi and arsenikoitai, literally means, as you said, men betting with men. Or, yeah. And so like when I heard him say that, I was like, how— how can you say that? I, I mean, it, it, he, he said in this interview that he spends he spends time in the languages, and uh, I mean that's that's a basic. Any exegetical commentary? I mean, I think even the one mentioned in the interview, Danny Aiken's exegetical commentary, would probably do a better job of that than than what Ed Litton did in that sermon. 
But see, I think this is all part of a, of a, of a larger issue within the Southern Baptist denomination. And that is that you have a number of people in leadership in the denomination who are going soft on these social and cultural issues because uh, they see that the tide is turning against Christians in the world. They see that the, the persecution is going to come and it's going to be over this issue, most likely. And um, they're going soft on it now, to, to use a, a word that could be a pun. They're going soft on the homosexual issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they are. And, and there are other people in this in the denomination who are not soft on that issue, like Al Mohler and Mark Dever and Matt Chandler. And some of these guys would probably still affirm that it is sin. Um, and they're, they're uh, I would maybe pull Matt Chandler out of that. But uh, Al Mohler would say that homosexuality is a sin. And he mentions it on his briefing. But his presence in the Southern Baptist denomination has done nothing to stem the tide of people in leadership positions all over the denomination, at seminaries, in seminaries, in, in big churches all over the denomination that are, are, changing the, uh, that are changing the course of the Southern Baptist Convention and denomination and not for the better. Yeah, yeah. And as, as we were talking about last night, uh, th- th- these are the conservatives, theoretically. I mean, the SBC is theoretically being led by the conservatives that won the battles back in the 80s, you know, trying to save yeah. the convention from the liberals. And theoretically, they they carried the day. And so these are supposed to be those people. And this is what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing a kowtowing to the culture. We're seeing a softening of biblical language. Uh, we're almost an apologetic. In fact, I don't know if you've watched that sermon from Romans one, but, but JD Greer even began his sermon in a very apologetic, almost like, yeah, we kind of got to deal with this. This is what the Bible says. And it's, they don't like it. Apologizing for it. Basically. Um, I mean, kind of remind me. Never get up and apologize for God's truth. No, 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 absolutely not. All right, Jim, I'm going to play one last audio clip from this interview that Ed Litton did. And I just want to say I apologize to, to anybody who has been offended and rightly so and hurt. And some of the things have been re- represented in such a way, but I, I'm not denying that, uh, that we borrowed these things. And, and, and I want to say this, too. I, I'm asked by good people and goodwill people, um, why didn't you just credit J.D.? I want you to hear my heart. This is not an excuse or justification. Uh, I am sorry I did not. Um, I had a preaching professor in seminary that um, we would preach in front of, and he would evaluate us. And he was one of the kindest people I've ever met uh, for evaluating. But uh, a student got up, probably the smartest guy in the class, and every citation from ICC, Linsky, from any critical commentary, he he made the, the, in any commentary, he cited all of them, and even his illustrations. He said, I got this from that book and a thousand illustrations or whatever. When he got finished, the professor very kindly said, that was a good sermon. But he said, I'm going to just tell you something. When a diamond miner goes looking for diamonds, he doesn't hold up the pick in the shovel. He holds up the diamond. Now, please hear my heart, Jonathan. Uh, I, I am not excusing myself or explaining, I'm just explaining my heart. I love my people and I want them to see Jesus. He is the diamond. Okay, go ahead. Uh, let me, let me, bar, let me use his illustration about the diamond. When you go uh, finding diamonds, you don't hold up the pick and the shovel. Uh, no, but imagine that you uh, imagine the difference between me finding a diamond that somebody else discovered and did a whole lot of work discovering 
and I pick up that diamond and I show it to you and you say, oh yeah, that's impressive. But then imagine that I took 40 hours out of my work week to dive down into the dirt and I got muddy and dirty and I bent all my fingernails back clawing for this diamond and I gave up my time and and I'm sweaty and exhausted after 40 hours of laboring to find this diamond. And then I come and I present the diamond to you. Which one is more impressive? See, he, he what all he's doing is standing before his people saying, um, hey, all that work that the other guys did, hey, let me show you this. This is Jesus. He's the diamond. People aren't impressed by that. But right. I want to see a guy stand before me and knowing that he's handing to me a diamond, some, some gem that he has picked up from scripture, and he has done the work. And he has been the man who has been changed by finding that diamond. Ed Litton is not changed by taking other people's work and preaching it to his people as if, as if he's just displaying Jesus. No, you're not. Jesus is displayed in us like we display a diamond. Jesus is displayed in us when we do the work of going into Scripture and getting to know him so that then we can stand before God's people and, and let them see Jesus. But then they look at us and say this, that what he is saying about Jesus cost him personally the time and the effort and the expense of, of making that truth known to us. That is where his illustration lacks. And so, yeah, we're all supposed to say, oh, Jesus is the diamond. Yeah, that's great. You just found the diamond and you didn't give credit for it. Um, his, his apology was, I'm apologized that I apologize that people were hurt by it, which is, I mean, that is, if that's not straight out of Bill Clinton's playbook, I have never heard an apology that is. Oh, no. I'm apologized that people were hurt by it. I would have more, Allow me to rant, rant for just a second. I would oh. have more respect for Ed Litton if he just came out and said, what is there to apologize for? Look, we're Southern Baptists. We've been doing this for 20 years. This is a cottage industry in our denomination. Why, why do you expect me to apologize? There's no, I, I don't see this as wrong. J.D. Greer doesn't see it as wrong. There's none of our intellectual luminaries in the Southern Baptist denomination that see it as wrong. We've had conservatives and liberals ruling this denomination for the last 30 years, and Rick Warren has been getting away with it. Ed Young's been getting away with it. Uh, uh, who's the other? Uh, Stephen Furtick has been getting away with it. Uh, Merrick has been getting away with it. All these guys have been getting away with it for 30 years and making money on it. We've not only been doing it, we've been encouraging everybody to do it, and this is the worst kept secret in the entire denomination. So no, I'm not going to apologize for it because we all do it. So I'm not going to get thrown under the bus just to make a bunch of you feel uh, better about yourselves. Save all of your pearl clutching and your hand wringing and your faux outrage for somebody else that cares because I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just doing what everybody else has been doing. This is what we've been training our people to do for 30 years. And this is the fruit of it. So own it and like it. This is SBC. You love it, like it, lump it, or get out of here. You know, that's, that's what he should have said. I'd have more respect for that than the mealy mouth apologizing and dancing around the issue and, and trying to look uh, lamentful at all of the nasal gate, navel gazing that's going on over the whole issue, just come out and own it. You've been doing it proudly for years. Come out and own it and, and, and say, this is what we expect of our pastors. I mean, if he's, if he is honestly committed to this, this discipleship methodology where eight people craft his sermon, he gets up and preaches other people's material, which he just defended in that interview, then why is he apologizing for doing it if people are hurt by it? He should just come out and said, I'm sorry that you were hurt by it, but I, we didn't do anything wrong. And um, it's all good. So the, the problem, it's a you problem. If you're hurt, that's a you problem, not a me problem. I would yeah. have more respect for him if he'd done that than all of this, all of the faux outrage that he's and, and faux remorse that he has uh, postured over the whole thing. All the dancing around the, the issue is just nothing but just words intended to ameliorate people's anger when they find out when the gig is up. Yeah. 
Right. And, you know, there are, there are people, uh, admittedly, within the Southern Baptist denomination who don't do this. I would never suggest, for instance, that Gabe Hughes, uh, Tom Askell, Tom Buck, uh, Josh Bice, I would never, I would be horrified if I found out that any of those dear brothers were involved in doing anything like this. Because I don't think that's, that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of cloth that those men are cut from. They're totally different animal. They're, they're an anomaly in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. And there are others who have probably gone on record and said uh, things about not doing this before. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if Mark Dever, for instance, could say, hey, we've never embraced this because we tell our people that you need to exposit scripture. And that's one of the nine marks of a healthy church. And we have multiple books on this and resources on exposition and exegesis, et cetera. So we stand against this. We're opposed to that. Well, I'm sure you are, Mark Dever. I'm sure you are, Al Mohler and others. But have you taken your Southern Baptist political capital and spent even a dime of it calling out some of these frauds, these men who are actually doing it in your denomination and having widespread influence doing it and training other people to do it? Have you called them out by name? Has Al Mohler ever named Ed Litton and, and Stephen Furtick and all of those other, sh- uh, Rick Warren on his podcast for doing this and called these men to repentance or even said to them at any time, has any of these luminaries within the Southern Baptist denomination said to any of these men, look, you either get in the game and stop playing church and stop doing this, or you're out of the denomination and I will spend my entire life opposing you and trying to get your church eliminated from the Southern Baptist denomination. Rick Warren just, Rick Warren just ordained women to the ministry of his church. Right. I mean, what Southern Baptist who has two brain cells to rub together, couldn't see that coming for the last 10 years. You knew it was going to happen. And yet they have, have we yet heard a peep from some of these men calling that out, calling them out and saying they need to be removed from the, 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 the denomination? I, I've right. heard nothing. Right. No, no. no that's, my, that's my rant. That's my two cent rant. That's your rant. And, and yeah. um, I'll throw a little, I guess, a little proverbial gasoline on that fire because not only is Rick Warren in um, ordained women now as, as ministers or preachers, uh, just a day or two ago, I don't even know if you know this, because I don't think we've talked about it, but just a day or two ago, Andy Stanley's church, North Point Church, baptized an openly homosexual man, baptized him, and, and his testimony is, is up for everyone to see. Hi, I'm Cortland Russell. I didn't grow up going to church or really having a relationship with Christ. I grew up in a loving home, but many of the people who were closest to me growing up had experienced rejection from the Christian communities that they had engaged in. Despite these experiences, I always found myself in some way curious about faith and surrounded by Christian people who poured love into me. It wasn't until I moved to Atlanta and met one of my now best friends, Gregory Cook, that I was connected with a community of LGBTQ Christians. He invited me for almost a year before I would say yes. It just so happened to be that we were starting an eight-week series called Renovate. It was through this community that I was able to connect with wonderfully supportive people like Debbie Causey and Sandy Harmon Waldrop, who shared with me the transformative power that Christ had had in their lives. I saw shining examples of healthy LGBTQ, Christ-centered relationships, and really started to have that personal relationship with Jesus for the first time in my life. I remember driving to Starting Point one week um, and listening to Andy's messages right before Starting Point groups as a way of preparing for that session. 
and I just started crying. I just could feel for the first time in my life this love and this connection in a way that I hadn't felt before. I'm excited to be baptized and publicly share that I love Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. Portland, it has been so incredibly faith-building to watch God draw you to him the last two years from skeptic to follower of Christ. And I have been so excited for this day. So based on your profession of faith in Jesus, it is my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As I watched that, I felt a strange combination of emotions. One, utter disgust that the leaders of Buckhead Church, which is one of the eight satellite campuses of North Point Church, pastored by Andy Stanley, that that they would not know better than to... Let me correct myself. They do know better. Andy Stanley does know what the Bible says about homosexuality. He is fully aware of it. He just chooses to ignore it. I I found myself in disgust of the leaders of North Point Church, uh, starting with Andy Stanley, Buckhead Church, whatever their pastors are, whatever their names are, but they do know better. They absolutely do know better. So I, I disgust in them but honestly heartbroken for that young man, Kirtland, and um, heart, heartbreak for him that nobody there loved him enough to tell him the truth. Nobody there loved him enough to sit down with him and read to him 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which states very clearly, among other texts, that if you die in homosexual sin, and he is in open, open homosexual sin, that he will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means he will spend an eternity in hell if he dies in the condition that he is in now, apparently. Well, this video is two years old. Two years old. Uh, Heartbroken for him that nobody loved him enough to tell him. Heartbroken for him that nobody loved him enough to go on to verse 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and say, Kirtland, If you truly repent of your sin and trust Christ, he will save you. And and you can join the ranks of verse 11 when Paul says, but such were some of you. You were those things. But you don't have to be. You were those things. You you were a liar. You were uh, effeminate. You were a homosexual. You were a reviler, covetous, idolaters. All those things that Paul lists in verse 9. You were those things, but... But you can be a new creature in Christ, Kirtland, if you truly repent of sin and trust Him. And Kirtland, if by chance, some chance you are watching this video, the people at North Point didn't love you enough to tell you that. But I will. I love you enough to tell you that, that there is freedom in Christ. I love you enough to tell you that if you die in the condition that you are in now, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are not a Christian because the the gospel transforms people. It transforms them. 
And you can have freedom in Christ if you repent of sin and trust him. Openly homosexual, Southern Baptist Church. Yeah, so uh, so in, he's obviously part of the Southern Baptist denomination. Yes. Okay, so I'm sure Al Mohler will come out if he knows about this and say something on the briefing. If Al Mohler were president, he's president of a seminary. He has tremendous, he's, he is the best known Southern Baptist in the country, far none. There's no close second. He's the best known of the conservative Southern Baptist in the country. Okay. Yeah. How much political capital is he willing to spend to get Andy Stanley's church kicked out of and barred out of the Southern Baptist convention and dishonorably discharged? Not that, you know, Hey, there's been a parting of ways. We're not comfortable with that. You should probably go your way. We'll go our way. But no, if the Southern Baptist leadership and even some of the, what we call conservative, we hope they're conservative had any backbone or, or fortitude at all, they would not only be calling this out, but they would be calling for the immediate dishonorable discharge of Rick Warren's church and Andy Stanley's church and Stephen Furtick and Ed Young from the Southern Baptist denomination. And they would be kicking those guys out with excoriating rebukes and reproofs. And they don't. So yeah, they'll talk about it. They'll talk about that issue. They'll mention it. And uh, yeah, I'm in cultural, I'm a cultural warrior and all that but they won't spend any political capital trying to make a difference in it. In which case they're doing nothing but greasing the skids, helping grease the skids of the slide of the entire denomination into apostasy. Yeah. And, and that's where it's, that's where it's headed undeniably. Um, we've seen this movie before, you know, when, yeah. when error, error start unchecked error always begets more error. And, right. And they, they haven't just started down the slippery slope. They're, they're well on their way. I mean, they're, they're picking up speed and well on their way. They're headed right to where, right where the United Methodist Church is now. That's that's where they're headed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I know that the response amongst many Southern Baptists will be, well, you know, it's not like any one or two of us could have that kind of a of an impact or change the direction of the denomination or have any effect on Charles Stanley or Andy Stanley's church. Well. Yeah, if if you had uh, Al Mohler and Mark Dever and and Tom Buck and Tom Askell and all of the all all of the leaders of the seminaries, every Southern Baptist seminary and the president of the seminary, you could check the apostasy of Rick Warren and Andy Stanley. But it just seems as if um, I know that not it's not true of all of them, but some of these men don't care about that. I say that about Al Mohler, knowing this is going to be public, but I just don't see that he he cares to spend any of his political capital changing any of that. Um, guys like at Tom Aspel and, and Tom Buck, I think, are exercised over this at a at a fundamental level because it, it grieves them as much as it should grieve any God-honoring Christian. But mm-hmm. the fact that we have leaders in the Southern Baptist denomination that haven't already discharged some of these churches from the Southern Baptist Convention shows how absolutely um, powerless the conservative leadership within the denomination actually is. And I know that the argument for some of those guys staying in the denomination is so that they could change it and get there and, and win the victory and, and, and get the, get the presidency. But once you get it, what are you going to do? Yeah. You, how, what are you going to change? How are you going to change it? You, you're going to steer that ship back. It's not just a matter of getting the presidency and okay, we're not going to drift left anymore. No, you've got to come back and you've got to right the ship. You've got to make a right-hand turn and take the denomination back a long way back to where it has come from. Yeah, that's right. A long way. And um, as you said, so that's I'm, just I'm, not going to happen. 
that's not going to happen. No, it's, it's not. I, I, I think at this point, honestly, and, and I say this as one who was born and reared in the Southern Baptist denomination. I got two theological degrees from uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. So uh, I've, I've been there, you know, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, as they say. I was a Southern Baptist for the first 37 or so years of my life. But um, I have seen too much now, uh, and especially even in the just in the last month since they since they had their convention. And now with this, uh, not only is the SBC a sinking ship, I think at this point you have to say, that the SBC is is not heading for God's judgment. I think it's already under the judgment of God. I, I think God is sinking the ship. I think God is actively sinking the ship. And uh, why hold why hold on to a, a ship that's that God Himself is sinking? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I said this on the podcast we did last night. I do not understand the the purpose of anybody staying inside the denomination. I think more. More would be done for the truth if you had an organized, coordinated, scheduled, and planned exit from the Southern Baptist denomination. And I'm not talking about one. I'm talking about. I'm not talking about one or two guys just sort of trickling out as one church after another leaves over the course of the next ten years. I'm talking about a systematic and coordinated exit from. We could call it a Bexit, a Baptist uh, or Sebexit, or whatever we want to call. Yeah, uh, of of the good guys. I mean, taking their churches and writing writing um, declaration of independence type declarations against 95 theses quality screeds against the Southern Baptist denomination and where it is going and all of them leaving on the same day, whatever day the Southern Baptist denomination came into existence, make that your target date, whatever day it is in the next 365 days, make that your target date and make a coordinated effort to leave the denomination. Every last one of you at once and you publish on your blog and on your website and uh, on your social media accounts, the reasons that you're leaving, and all of those churches leave, that would make a huge statement, and it would be a huge testimony to the uh, to the truth of Scripture and to the willingness of those men to stand against the denomination for the truth of Scripture. That, that's how I think it should be handled. And yeah. once again, we covered this at the beginning. I'm not a Southern Baptist pastor, so I got no dog in that hunt. And right. it's easy for me to say from, from my comfy chair here in the shade in North Idaho. Yeah, but... Uh... You know, especially with this 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 scandal, and if it, it if if it is left unchecked, which apparently it is, because uh, you listen to the interview that Litton did today, there was no hint in there of, you know, I might I might need to step down for the betterment of the convention to to, you know, just I'm a distraction now. Uh, it's it's why should he? Full he's, steam all, all he's done. Why should he step down? All he's done is the same thing that uh, dozens and dozens of others have been doing in this cottage industry in the SBC for years. Yeah. yeah. The ironic thing is that if I had, if I had done 1% of the plagiarism, just that I have seen from Ed Litton, not only would I have been kicked out and there's a whole lot more, I have no doubt that I have not seen, never will see. But if I had done 1% of the amount of plagiarism that I have seen from Ed Litton already, not only would I have been kicked out of seminary as a seminary student, and I would have, I would have been kicked out of Mississippi State University, my undergraduate. <laughs> I would have been kicked as a secular institution. Hey, even the pagans understand this. Right. 
Right. Even the pagans get it. I would have been kicked out of a secular, godless institution. And yet Ed Linton has done far more, and he is the president of the SBC. That, yeah, but hey, Justin, the world's watching. The world's watching. The world's watching. Select the, select the right guy. world's yep. watching. In fact, the they said watching. that on that interview. They said yeah. that on an interview. The world's watching. We need to be real careful. The world's watching our conduct. Well, yeah, they are. They're watching. They sure make are. a complete clown show out of the Southern Baptist denomination. Yep, they sure are. Yep. Now, the clown show has been going on in the background. It's just now that somebody just shined a light on it and said, oh, this is what's been going on in Southern Baptist churches for years. Yeah, exactly. The plagiarism. Yep. I mean, we can't pretend that this is all new, that this has all happened since May. No. Or that it's been one guy. That Ed Litton is the one guy in the Southern Baptist denomination. They they just happened to stumble upon the one guy, the one guy in the whole Southern Baptist denomination who plagiarizes sermons and preaches other people's material. Just that one guy. He happened to become the Southern Baptist president. What are the odds? Just, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's Wuhan <laughs> luck. If you didn't have Wuhan right. luck, you wouldn't have any luck at all, right? Right, exactly. I mean, you can go to, you can go to um, Rick Warren's website right now. I did just the other day, and all of his sermons are available for a download. I think it's $4 per download. Yeah. Uh, get everything, you know, sermon outline, content, illustrations, everything. Good to go. Bada boom, bada bing. Get up and, you know, read it. On, on, on and there are one. thousands of pastors that do it. Thousands. Yeah, the church that I the church that I did my internship up in in uh, northern Saskatchewan had a pastor uh, a few years back who was doing the very same thing. He was caught he was caught reading one of Rick Warren's sermons, preaching all the materials as if it was his own. And one of the elders in that church um, uh, was a friend of mine, and he he called me up and he said, "Hey, I, I was sitting there in a Sunday sermon and listened to it. I thought, man, this sounds familiar." So he said, "I just went and Googled it and found out he's just preaching Rick Warren's sermons." Yeah. Thousands. Yeah. Is that there are thousands yeah. of pastors who do that. It's, yeah. a, it's a whole cottage industry. And the, the Southern Baptist denomination for two decades has been, we see no evil. We hear no evil. Right. Right. Speaking of SBC presidents, I think I sent you the video. Did I send you the short little video of James Merritt from 2007? Yeah. Yep. So James Merritt, for those of you who are watching, he was, um, he's a pastor of a very large Southern Baptist church and former president of the SBC. I don't remember what year he was president, but he's former president of the SBC. And um, he actually said on a father's day, uh, he said, I, here's my sermon. You can go to website.com, whatever it was, download it. Everything's there. PowerPoint slides all there. And he said, you have my permission and just go at it and, and preach my stuff. And, and then he, and then literally the next words out of his mouth, the subject that I've been a, uh, assigned tonight is holiness. I love pastors, and I know that Father's Day is coming, and I want to give you something. If you'll go to pastorsedge.com and go to the newsletter section, there's a Father's Day message there, complete with PowerPoint, notes for your people, a complete manuscript. And I hereby authorize you to preach every word. You're not plagiarizing, so just enjoy yourself, Okay. But uh, tonight, I was given the topic of holiness. <laughs> and, you know, the irony would have been if his first point was the way you pursue holiness is you get alone with God and his word and you study it and preparing your own messages. <laughs> right. right. He just. It's no self-awareness whatsoever. Oh, my goodness. I, I just. Absolutely I cannot, none. It's, it's like a Babylon bee. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I really. Yeah, like, they have a hard time writing this stuff. No kidding. No kidding. Where is the fear of God? I mean, where is the fear of God? Uh, you know, we all say that we're going to give an account one day. 
before Christ. Uh, and, and pastors would say that, that they're going to, you know, they're going to give an account and they will, but, yep. but you know what, one of these days you and I, Jim, and no one else, we're not going to give an account to a board, to a committee, to a denomination. We're not going to give an account to any of those people. We're going to stand before Christ. And that mm-hmm. thought terrifies me. I mean, that mm-hmm. is not that I'm like afraid of losing my salvation because theologically I know that, right. I can't, but, but to know that one day I will stand before the thrice holy King of Kings and Lord of Lords and have to give an account for what I've done with his word, how I have handled it, the, the way I have taught his sheep that terrifies me. And, and, and I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just at a loss for words to do, to even, I can't even wrap my mind around what is going through the minds of these men who step behind the pulpit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and read somebody else's work as if it was their yeah. own and how they so sloppily handle the word of God. I mean, to say something like the Bible doesn't even differentiate between heterosexuality and homosexuality. How, how do you say that? How do you, how do you say that uh, something like, you know, how, I know that homosexuality will not send you to hell because heterosexuality will not send you to heaven. Homosexuality does not send you to hell. You know how I know that? Because heterosexuality does not send you to heaven. Homosexuality does not send people to hell. How do I know that? Because heterosexuality doesn't send people to heaven. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's horrible theology. And, uh, and what's been going on in the Southern Baptist denomination for years is that exposition has been lost true exposition right now these men get up and they read and this is something you and i should discuss in a series of videos on the subject but these men will get up and, and they will read the passage of scripture a passage of scripture and then they'll give three or four points on it. sometimes the points are connected to the passage of scripture sometimes the ideas of the points are drawn out of the passage of scripture but it's not an exposition it's not people do not walk away from that with a clear understanding of what that passage teaches in its context and how it connects to the argument of the author in its text in its context yeah. That's what expository preaching does, right. serial expository preaching. And so they have been, uh, they have abandoned expository preaching a long, long time ago in favor of a far more seeker friendly, um, a dumbed down sort of common, lowest common denominator Christianity approach to getting up and teaching scripture. Really, it's three points that they gin up that they're just sort of hanging on words and phrases in scripture rather than allowing scripture to speak for itself. So men who do not exposit scripture and handle scripture in the way that Ed Litton, J.D. Greer, and we, all the other guys that we've mentioned in this podcast, which are, which are not solid, you know, Andy Stanley and, and all the cohorts, those men do not, um, they don't tremble at the threshold of the biblical text. And that phraseology, I'm not sure if that is the title of a book or it's something that I, I read in an expository preaching text, or if it's something I got out of a preaching class in Bible college, I don't know where I got it. But the idea of trembling at the threshold of the biblical text that like Isaiah did when he saw God, when you step upon the the threshold of stepping into scripture, trembling at the idea that I have this text of scripture and that I'm going to be responsible for communicating its meaning to people and not put God's words in God's mouth and not leave out things that God would have said in this passage, right? Not editing him in any way, but accurately representing the intended meaning of the author and the intended meaning of the Holy Spirit in this passage of scripture. That is daunting, and it should terrify men. Yes. And the fact that he would just say, oh, I'm just going to farm that out to my eight guys on staff with me here, 
that shows me that he has no true reverence for the word of God. Whatever his doctrinal statement on his church website might be concerning scripture, he has no true fear of the word of God and no reverence for it. He has no high view of scripture at all, or he would never want to farm that out to anybody, a cogent group or a docent group or any other group of pastors. He wouldn't want to farm that out. He would want to step into the text himself if he really valued it that way and do all of the work himself in the text. Right. And, and you would affirm this, Jim, as, as a pastor, and, and I, I'm not a pastor, but I do preach uh, sermons as I have an opportunity to do so. Uh, no one benefits more from doing exposition than the expositor, than the one who is yeah. actually... If the expositor is doing it right, yeah. If, if the, the expositor is doing it right, uh, he, he's getting the most out of it. And, and I you know that I don't preach through passages of scripture fast in terms of like, I don't cover 10, no. 12 verses at a time. No, <laughs> so um, people think that I go really slow and I, I do go, I do go what I think is appropriate to the material that I'm handling. That's my goal. It's my goal is never to go faster, to go slow, but to go in a method appropriate to communicating everything that the author would intend, everything that is there and connect all the dots and to be thorough. I want to do that. Um, and, and when, and when I am doing that, even though I go as slow as I do, I'd leave a tremendous amount of stuff on the editing room floor. There are points and, and observations that I just have to cut out for the sake of time. And those are all things that have, uh, those are all diamonds, if you will, that I have polished and spent the time polishing. I've unearthed them. I've worked for them. I've brought them to the surface. I've admired them. I've been changed by them but I have to drop them on the editing room floor and to, to leave room for the other things that I need to communicate because time prohibits me from including everything that I discover in my own study. So yeah. I'm only presenting a portion of what I glean from a passage in my own study on any yeah. given Sunday. Um, yeah. and, and I'm doing it in an inadequate way and I've wrestled with God and it's not, um, I don't think that my efforts are, are the best are efforts that could be made. I'm, there are men who do a better job of it than I do. And, but yet I benefit from it to a tremendous degree. And I would never sacrifice. I would never farm that out to anybody else for anything. You could not pay me enough money. It wouldn't matter how busy my week would be. I would yes. never farm that. I would just say, I, I don't have time to preach this week. So somebody else is going to have to do it for me. I do not have time to, if I don't have time to, to do that studying, then I don't have time to, to prepare to get up into the yeah. pulpit. And I wouldn't. And I, I just wouldn't. And I know that from firsthand experience, because there's been times, you know, usually when you ask me to preach at Kootenai, it's because you've got something else going on that you've, you've got to attend yeah. to somewhere. You've got to go, you've got to go out of town. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard you say, you know, I, I don't have time to, to prepare a, a sermon for this week. Can you fill in on, on X Sunday, you know? Yeah. And, and um, so I know that to be true. Yeah. And when, and when my time is strained, I, I just simply cut out other things. I have, I have three book ideas that I would love to be working on right now, but I just don't have the time. I get 40 hours a week to, to sermon prep, you know, and I got to, I have other, other pressing demands of, of ministry, but I, I, I can take my sermon prep effort and I can scrunch it down and hopefully become fruitful with less time spent, but I still have to do all the steps of the same work in order to prepare it. But I can try and take what should cost me 30 hours in a week and I can try and get it down into 20 or 24 if a week is really demanding. Um, and sometimes I can, I can get a sermon and, and preach that, but I'm still doing the work. Yeah. I don't, I don't farm that out to make room for other things. There, there is no, 
other thing that I'm primarily called to. There's no other thing that any pastor is primarily called to. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And if, if, if you're too busy to prepare a sermon, then you either need some help doing the other responsibilities or, or you, you don't need to be preaching. Yeah. Yeah. And in our church, we just have a motto. If, it, if, if, I, if we don't have time to get it done, it just doesn't get done. Right. I mean, there's other things that can fall by the wayside. Right. The world is not, you know, my primary responsibility is not to write another book. My primary responsibility is not to go out and visit every family in your church this week. I, I have, I have uh, big items that need to be fit in and studying is one of those. And, and if I don't have time for other things, then they just get put off until next week. If I can get to them. I love what you said a minute ago that, that there's not enough money to pay you to farm that out to anyone else yeah. to research the, the research and studies. Uh, there's not enough money to get me to give that responsibility to someone, someone else. You want to do this. Oh yeah. Uh, well, look, I've said when I, when I get down, Okay. It's not uncommon for me to pray when before my study to thank God for the joy that I have of spending my days studying scripture and that the church pays me so that I am freed up from other concerns to earn money so that I can devote my time to doing that. Right. That is, I think, the biggest blessing in my life. And I wouldn't give that I, w- I wouldn't give that up any more than I would give up one of my children or my wife. This is a huge blessing in my life. Why would I farm that out to the docent group? What lunatic? would farm out the time that he could be spending in God's word. Um, and, and the church, if the church pays you to freeze you up to do that, that's the biggest blessing in your life. The, the greatest thing you could be given your time to do. Um, and so why would you hire somebody else to do that on your behalf? Right. It'd be like me hiring somebody else to take my wife out. Hey, take her out for dinner. Uh, <laughs> take her to a fancy restaurant, give her some roses, make it really special. Uh, you know, cuddle up with her, maybe kiss her a couple times on the forehead when you, when you pull out her chair for her, just make it really nice for her. And uh, I got I, other things I got to do or a team of men to date and court my wife. And I would never do that. Being with her is the greatest blessing of my life. Why, why would I take scripture and, and have somebody else do all the work in that? It's the greatest blessing of my ministry is the time I get to spend in studying and researching and doing all that for my own, my own fruitfulness, my own blessing of my own soul. I would never hire other people to do that. It's insane. Right. The fact that they would do this proves that they just have such a low view of scripture. I, I just, there's no other way of saying that. Yeah. No, there's not. There's, there's not. Yeah. You run up into some pretty stark spiritual realities as we discuss these things. Very stark. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks I for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for taking your time. To study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, I'll get to to see you next weekend. You're going to be up here at church with us. Yes. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, buddy. Yeah, I am as well. Thank you. All All right. right. All right. Well, dear ones, I hope this was helpful for you. We covered a lot of ground and uh, actually more ground than I even thought that we would. And, And some pretty hard things were said. But, but these are, these are realities. And so I, I hope that this has uh, encouraged you. I hope it's challenged you. And if you find yourself in a church where you, you are not truly being fed, if you're just getting someone else's materials, someone else's sloppy seconds over, you know, you, you need to find a, a shepherd that will nourish your soul, shepherd you, um, teach you the word of God and, 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 and do the work that an elder is biblically called to do. Uh, 
All right. Thank you very much, dear ones. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or are interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.